This is Anne Hill and Dream Talk Radio. And uh, on the phone with me, uh, um, really, you probably spent three hours uh, wand- walking through a blizzard to get to the phone this morning is uh, Dr. Ernest Hartman, and who is past president of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, was the first editor-in-chief of ASD's uh, scholarly journal, Dreaming. Uh, Dr. Hartman is professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and is director of the Sleep Disorders Center at Newton Wellesley Hospital. Uh, Dr. Hartman, I'm so pleased to have you on the show today. Yeah, it's, it's great, to, great to be here. And you're right, we've had too much snow. I, I, I wish, I, I wish, wish I, I were with you in California. <laughs> I won't tell you how how dreadful it was scraping a little bit of ice off of the windshield this morning and driving in on the beautiful clear roads on a sunny day to the studio. I wouldn't I wouldn't torture you by saying how gorgeous it is out here today. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> on well, the other hand, my daughter's in Chicago. So. Oh yeah, Chicago's been worse. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be in California in two or three weeks. In fact, I'm giving a talk at Santa Clara University oh, really? in a few weeks. So oh, great. I'll be out there somewhere. Well, fabulous! You'll you'll get a nice little reprieve from all of the the snow back there. So uh, you have two new books out, and I this is just I'm so excited to have you on the show because you know I've been familiar with your work for many years and uh, seen some of your presentations at the ASD meetings and so forth. But now I finally get to talk to you, so this is great. So uh, let me introduce your two books. You've got one out by Oxford University Press called The Nature and Functions of Dreaming, and then a second one out by a smaller press. Uh, <coughs> is it Circa? Circa Press? Well, it's called C-I-R-C-C. It's in California. But... Okay. And that one is called Boundaries, A New Way to Look at the World. Mm. So let's start with the concept of boundaries, which is something that you have really pioneered over the years. And I think it's so important into to understanding your take on the functions of dreaming. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'd love to talk about boundaries. I, I, I don't know whether you're, you, your listeners are not particularly psychologists. Or anything like that. Well, all, all, everybody's all, a psychologist all, in Northern California. We're all but, post-Jungians here. But I can, well, okay. Well, so the boundary, the idea of boundaries is fairly simple. Now, my collaborators and I have done research for 20 years now on boundaries of various kinds. <clears throat> now, what, is, what are boundaries? Uh, well, you know, the, our world is full of boundaries, both mm-hmm. outside us and inside us. We started with boundaries in the mind, you know, our own personal boundaries, of which there are many kinds. Now, the idea is no matter how you think of the mind, you know, real, real people, lay people think of like the mind is made of thoughts and feelings yeah. and memories. If you're a Freudian or a Jungian, well, Freudian especially, you think of ego, id, superego, defenses and so on. Sure. If you're a cognitive psychologist, neuroscientist, you may think of somatic processing modules and things like that, <coughs> different, different processing mm-hmm. modules. But however you think of the mind, you've got a number of things, you know, entities, thoughts, feelings, ego, a number of entities, which are separate, but of course they're not really separate. You know, they're separable, but they're not really separate. Yeah. There's a boundary between them. And the boundary can be either thick and solid, keep things separate, or it can be thin, 
permeable, flexible. So that's the basic idea of boundaries, thickness mm-hmm. and boundaries. So <clears throat> people in the past, people have said, well, you, know, you study the entities, the boundaries are just imaginary lines. But we don't think of them as imaginary lines. Mm-hmm. They, they have a certain solidity. We have a boundary questionnaire that's been taken now by 10,000 people. It's been translated in many languages. Uh, we also have some some physiological measures of boundaries. Yeah. But the idea is that let me just get, let me give you a listen to an idea of what what I mean uh, by by thick and solid. Sure. See, some pe- I'm going to exaggerate. You know, mm-hmm. People who have really thick, solid boundaries in all kinds of ways. That's one extreme on the boundary questionnaire. Having having a thick, solid boundaries would mean uh, like. Thoughts are one thing and feelings are another. You know, yeah. I keep my thoughts in one place. I don't let my feelings get in the way of my thinking. As someone with really thin boundaries thinks that's crazy. You know, they, how, how, can there, how can there be a thought without feeling? There are a number, number of wonderful poems I mentioned in my book that say exactly that. Yeah. You can't have thought without feeling. <clears throat> now, someone with thick, very thick boundaries will say, I'm a man. You're a woman, you know, vive la différence. Right. And someone with thin boundaries will think more like, well, I'm a man, but there's a lot of feminine in me, too. I suppose if you're Jungian, I mean, you, you, you know all that. So thin, thin boundaries accepts that there's a lot of interchange, intermingling shades yes. of gray. You know, someone with very thick boundaries will say, this is my group. You know, I am a Texan. I am a Jew. I am a this. Mm-hmm. You know, we are... Special. We do things one way. Other people do things otherwise. Uh, some within boundaries will say, "Well, yes, I'm a Texan, but I'm also American. I'm a Democrat. I'm a million other things." You know, my, my identity is not fixed in one place. There are no walls. So there, the thick boundaries means walls, keeping things separate, solid yeah. separations. Thin boundaries is looseness. You know, no walls, flexibility. And I'm, and I hope it's clear I'm not making value judgments. Right. I'm, you know, both it's both are very useful. Thick boundaries and thin boundaries. We need people with both kinds. Some of us have both sorts of boundaries. But now, uh, well, okay. So I can, I, in my book, I go in all kinds of directions yes. with boundaries, all the way from personality differences uh, to world peace. But I think for your Listeners, let me let me talk a little bit about the relationship of boundaries to dreaming, uh, since that's sort of your yeah. subject and my subject in a way. And then I'll then I'll shut up for a while. <laughs> but <clears throat> now it turns out that there's a very close relationship between boundaries, as I've described them, and <clears throat> boundary questionnaires, the way that we measure boundaries, between boundaries and dreaming. Mm-hmm. First of all. It turns out that people with the thinner your boundaries are, the more dreams you tend to remember. And also, people with very thin boundaries are the ones who are likely to have nightmares. Mm-hmm. People, <clears throat> people with really thick boundaries uh, will tend not to have any nightmares, and often they either have no dreams or. They have an occasional dream, but then they're not interested in their dreams, mm-hmm. so they let them go. And and when they do have dreams, the, the, the dreams are more, you know, sort of solid. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few examples that show up in my book somewhere. You know, people 
literally dreaming about about walls. Uh, so people, thin boundaries goes with more dreaming, yeah. more tendency to have nightmares, and also more uh, vivid, exciting, emotional sorts of mm-hmm. dreams. And we've, that, that's my book, too. We've, yeah. we've written several papers about dreams of people with thick and thin boundaries. And, and we, you know, we rate them all on, on a blind basis. We, we've done a lot of research studies, all, all carefully, systematically done. And the people with thin boundaries do have different dreams. And the simplest way to say that they're more, more dreamlike, more exciting. Well, that's what so, I was going to... So the people, okay. people who are really excited by their dreams, who dream a lot, tend to be people with relatively thin yeah. boundaries. Well, let me, let me stop there for a while and see, see whether I've made sense to you and your... Well, that's one thing that I wanted to highlight, actually, this, this mm-hmm. most recent thing that you said, which is that uh, so the, the content of dreams is different, for, for, or, or apparently different, based on mm-hmm. dream reports. I, I would think that people with thin boundaries would have much more of a sort of a shape-shifting type of dream, where you'd remember vividly, I'm, I'm in this dream, but I'm actually a bird flying. You would, you know, go back and forth between species almost, whereas mm-hmm. it would, would, I mean, is this correct? Whereas when somebody with thick boundaries who remembers a dream, it's very clear that I am who I am in waking life. Mm-hmm. <coughs> well, yeah, yes, I think that's true. And I, I have a number of uh, examples that show up in my, in my books. I, I haven't done a real research study on shape-shifting and boundaries and, and mm-hmm. your exact identity in the dream. But from my experience, I would say yes, certainly. Uh, now, I, I, I don't know. Well, we've done some research work. Uh, other people, Schredel, I think, have done work. Mm-hmm. Um, most, most people have dreams in which they are themselves yeah. most of the time. I mean, even, even though I, I have a lot of thin boundaries, I mean, I'm a mixture, but... I have to admit, I very, very seldom have a dream in which I'm not simply myself. Yeah. But just as you say, people with very thin boundaries, people who have nightmares, people who remember huge numbers of interesting dreams, will report dreams in which uh, exactly, that I've got two or three examples of exactly what you mentioned. Of uh-huh. I am, I am a, in this dream, I was a bird flying across the United States. I could... Yeah. See everything spread out below me. It was very beautiful. Yeah, that's a dream I've yeah. heard from a couple of women, especially with with very very thin boundaries. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yes, I, uh, <clears throat> I kind of I kind of wish I had more <laughs> dreams like that. I, I cannot even remember a dream in which I was a woman. Although again, people with really thin boundaries, I know a number of of especially women with very thin boundaries. Who have who definitely have dreams in which they are a man? Yeah, it's very interesting, and I, uh, and I appreciate your insistence that this is not a value judgment in any sense. Yeah. It's just it's simply different personality makeups, and yeah, yeah. I, I'm wondering. This wasn't something that I had on my list of questions to ask, but now I'm wondering because you uh, work at the sleep disorders clinic, that's something that's come up a lot on the show. People calling in with anxiety and insomnia and uh, sleep apnea and various things. 
And I'm wondering if you found that your boundary research gives you any leg up in terms of helping people out with their sleeping disorders, whether certain sleeping disorders occur more often in certain populations than others. Hmm. <coughs> well, yes, we have a lot of data on that, uh, but it's it's hard to summarize. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would say people, again, I'm talking about very thin and very thick because yeah. it's easier that way, even though most of us are probably more in between something and something. But people with very thin boundaries <coughs> have m- tend to have more, well, more, more medical and psychiatric diagnoses is one way to put it. So certainly mm-hmm. more anxiety. But having thin boundaries doesn't mean you have to be yeah. anxious. But people with very thin boundaries are, are very sensitive. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm not sure your listeners quite have the idea of boundaries. One, because I gave three or four examples of what mm-hmm. we mean. Another part of thin boundaries is sensitive. Yes. People with thin boundaries are very sensitive. People with thick boundaries can shrug things off more. Right. You know, part of it is thin-skinned and yes. thick-skinned. So, for instance, someone with thin boundaries is hurt very easily yeah. by things that wouldn't hurt someone with thicker boundaries as much. So, again, several people with thin boundaries have told me they, they remember as a child, you know, weeping yeah. inconsolably for weeks when a pet died, you know, something like that. Yes. So people with very thin boundaries like that also tend to, they're more hurt, they're more worried. So they tend to be more anxious in a number mm-hmm. of ways. And anxiety sometimes leads to insomnia in, in young people, mm-hmm. especially it's connected with difficulty falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't, but, but I'm not saying that uh, having thin boundaries is, is pathological. You know, that sure. I've, I've looked at that very carefully, too. Uh, well, well let, let me, uh, talk about your question more specifically. Is, are there any sleep problems that occur more in people with thick boundaries? <clears throat> well, in, interestingly enough, uh, we did find that, find that patients in two different sleep disorder centers, the one I used to direct and another one in, in uh, Cincinnati, mm-hmm. uh, there were a lot of patients with sleep apnea. That's the yeah. most common uh, diagnosis now at sleep disorder centers. And the patients with chronic sleep apnea, who'd had ap- serious apnea, apparently they'd had apnea for a long time, they, they had much thicker boundaries than usual on the mm-hmm. boundary questionnaire. And now this, this struck us as somewhat odd. You know, why should, <coughs> why should people with thick boundaries develop yeah. apnea? <coughs> uh, people with thick necks develop apnea. That's huh. Uh, for those of you listeners who know about obstructive sleep apnea, it happens often, not always, but most of the time it happens in people, men more than women, men with not necessarily overweight overall, but who have big necks, yeah. a lot of tissue in their necks. It blocks the airflow. But So thick necks is one thing, but that's not thick boundaries. Right. Why, why, should, <laughs> why should people with with thick boundaries develop apnea and you know we we 
thought about it, we did some little studies that said no reason we could think about that would happen. But but I think it probably happens the other way around. Yeah. That any any person who has a second act and who has various other predisposing factors can develop sleep apnea. <coughs> but once you develop sleep apnea and it's not treated, <coughs> you really have trouble staying awake. Yes. You, you have trouble doing your work. You keep falling asleep in the daytime. You're in danger of losing your job. There's all kinds of stress on you from the sleep apnea. And our feeling is that that probably produces, tends to gradually thicken your boundaries. You know, if you're just barely awake enough mm. to do your work, you, you tell yourself, I've got to do I've got to do it black and white, A, yes. B, C, D, none of this shades of gray, maybe this, maybe that. None of none of that thin stuff. Right. No. I, I've I've just got to get it done. I've got to go from A to B before I fall asleep. So our thinking is that the relationship with sleep apnea, which was somewhat surprising, goes the other way around. That people who have sleep apnea for years, which is often the case before it's treated, yeah. they gradually develop thicker boundaries. Yeah, that's does that, does interesting. That make sense? I'm hope I'm hoping you're going to talk for a while. Oh, I am. I, in <laughs> fact, got, I'm slightly hoarse, as you can tell, <laughs> from shoveling all that snow. Oh, from shoveling in order to get to the phone. I so appreciate. It. Okay, well, I will talk for a little bit. Uh, you're listening to Dream Talk Radio here on Cows. I'm <clears throat> Ann Hill. I'm your host every week uh, here on uh, from nine to ten a.m. We're talking with Dr. Ernest Hartman this morning. Uh, Dr. Hartman is the author of at least 10 books and over 300 scholarly articles on dreams and so forth. His most recent contributions are The Nature and Functions of Dreaming, which is a lovely book. It's just come out from Oxford Press. And if you're interested in just a a nice, it's not a real daunting size. So if you want to dip your toe into (coughs) just basically a summary of a life's work of dream research, I highly recommend it, The Nature and Functions of Dreaming, and also Boundaries, A New Way to Look at the World. (coughs) And uh, the the concept of boundaries is something that Dr. Hartman has been developing (coughs) for many years, and that's what we've been talking about the you know first of all this morning right off the bat yeah. one thing and, that and, and, and I'd, yeah. I'd love it if I can butt in for a second sure. I'd love it by the way if some of your listeners read the book on boundaries and had some wanted to get in touch with me about them because I go I, I say all kinds of things that might be disputable or debatable I'd love to if, if people find I say to me that they think it's totally wrong I'd love right. to love to hear about it. That's the, Great. That's the, most, that's the kind of feedback. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful open invitation. Mm-hmm. The thing that's, that's so uh, fascinating to me about the book on boundaries is that it really takes a kernel of what is, is your life's work, I would say. I mean, you, you've done so much research mm-hmm. on boundaries and so much exploration of the concept. Mm-hmm. It takes it from dreams into uh, relationships, different kinds of uh, boundaries in relationships, like you said earlier, I'm man, you are woman, and ne'er the twain shall meet, and that sort of thing, to a much more fluid exploration of, uh, you know, gender roles and so forth. And then you bring it into um, 
society, you know, societies that have thick or thin boundaries, where the the whole question of who's a good person and who's a bad person, or how do you treat people who are doing things you don't like? I I mean, these are huge questions. And I love the, the idea of extrapolating this little kernel of insight into dreams into into a much larger picture. I mean, you go into philosophy and metaphysics, like what is real and not real. I mean, that's, my God, there's not enough cappuccino to sit through all of the conversations that have been had about what is real and not real science piece. So, uh, you know, it's there's there are two really different um, focuses in the books. And that's kind of what makes you a fascinating interview, <laughs> interviewee. Yeah, yeah. What? Also, did you, did you like the idea of the amoeba principle? Yes, I do. And maybe, let's see, Let's. you want to explain that for our listeners? Oh, well, I, I, thought, maybe you, <laughs> I thought maybe you wanted to, but, well, I catch my breath, but I, I, can, oh, do it. I can do it so if you'd like. <laughs> I mean, the idea is, now this only makes sense if you know what I mean by boundaries, if what yeah. I've said has made sense to you. Because psychologists use boundaries in so different senses. I'm trying to include all of them. You know, bound, yeah. Thick and thin boundaries is a very broad concept. Yeah. Uh, we can get thick or thin in all kinds of different, different you know, thick and thin in many different ways. But they all they tend to go together. You know, people tend to have either relatively thick boundaries right. or relatively thin boundaries. Uh, they're, they're well correlated. So for instance, someone who Someone who's, who has no in-between states, mm-hmm. someone who, who has thick boundaries in the sense of, I'm totally awake or totally asleep. Yeah. I'm dreaming or I'm waking, that's all there is to it. Or, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman, that's all there is to it. That person will also have thick boundaries in other senses, such as, you know, the way to get along, the way for one nation or one group to get along with another is to be absolutely clear about what you need and what they need, and then make the proper legal agreements, you know, right. and that's it. You know, a thin boundary. So the things, the boundaries go together. Uh, but now the question is, does, are we stuck with our boundaries? Do we do we just have thick boundaries or thin boundaries, or can they shift? <coughs> and they do shift. We have some data on that. My book has some data and a mm-hmm. lot of speculation. But the most interesting uh, point that we've come up with over and over all is what I call the amoeba principle. Yeah. If some of you remember looking at an amoeba under the microscope, I know, I know I did that in way back when I was a kid. I don't know if people still do that, but yeah, you know what an amoeba is. It's sure. It's a lobby little, thing that spreads yeah. out its pseudopods. Uh, you look at it under the microscope. Okay, so it spreads out its pseudopods until it bumps into something dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you Usually the, the instructor or the person looking on the microscope has a little pin. And you poke the amoeba. <laughs> and when, when it hits something like a pin or a corner, it pulls it. Yeah. It pulls its outspread through the parts together and kind of thickens its skin. Okay, so the, that's the end. So the amoeba principle says that we're all like that. We're all like amoebas. And our societies are like amoebas, too. Mm-hmm. So we may, when things are peaceful, we spread out, we can be thin and all, have thin boundaries in all kinds of ways. But when something dangerous happens, for instance, 9-11, something dangerous happens, we tend to pull in and thicken our boundaries, we get tougher. And there's all kinds of interesting 
data about that, which was not not done by me so much, but mm-hmm. there are several groups in New Mexico and Arizona have one done what they call terrorism research, but mm-hmm. uh, they, but they found interesting things. For instance, that after 9/11, people shifted towards being tougher. And if you ask them yeah. questions about a hypothetical defendant and what sort of sentence should they get or something like that. They, they were tougher after 9-11 than before. They shifted in that direction. Yeah. Uh, there was one, one study was done about judges. This, was this one group of psychologists managed to get 20 or 30, I think, uh, local judges to fill out a questionnaire. Uh, and it was, again, a, they were given a case, a hypothetical case that comes before them. I think it was a prostitute, and, and you know, they, they were told she was picked up here and there. And what sort of bail would you set? Mm-hmm. You know, how much has she got to pay to stay out of jail while, while the trial goes forward? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, it's a small, it's not a major crime, they had a small bail. But some of the, half the judges were asked to do that in, in their ordinary state, they just read some little essay about nothing much. Yeah. And half the judges were asked to make the, that same determination after they had been given a an essay about death, uh-huh. an essay that makes you think about your own death yeah. and wonder what's going to happen. And then, you know, they had tested that out. It's a fairly d- disturbing sort of uh, essay, what they, they call it mortality salience. Mm-hmm. You're in a state mm-hmm. of, oh, a little bit like terrorists right, attack. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, you're in a state of worrying that uh, you know, maybe you're going to die and what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, who knows? So, And it turned out that the judges, everything else was the same, but the judges who had just read this article that made them worry about their deaths <coughs> turned out to set a much higher bail. They, oh. had, they typically asked the prostitute to post Four hundred dollars bail, wow. whereas the other the judges who did not have this condition uh, set a fifty dollar bail. <laughs> there, was, there was quite a difference, and you know, and the the, the authors, it's not this is not my study, but they relate that to to terrorism. You know, when when we're under some kind of attack, terrorist attack, we get tougher in all kinds. Of See, ways. that's, that's so simple, that's so interesting. Way to measure it. I would have thought it would be the opposite. I mean, I was trying to guess. Okay, they've just been sort of uh, had a close encounter with their own mortality. How are they going to go on this? And I would have thought they'd get a little more existential. Like in the end, what does it matter? You know, yeah. no, no, no. They <laughs> not got, so they, much. They That's really interesting. When they were, when they felt yeah. attacked, they got tougher. Yeah. Now, yeah. also, for instance, there are data from several sources showing that after 9/11, the idea is after 9/11. I, I also did a study about dreams before and after 9-11, mm-hmm. by the way, but that, that's, that's, an, that's another tale. Sure. But we can talk about that later if, if you want to. But, but after, after 9-11, there was an upsurge in uh, attendance at a solid, old-fashioned uh, church uh-huh. religion. Uh-huh. Traditional churches had much more people coming to services in, in October and November yeah. of 01 than they did in the months before that. And I, you know, I'm not sure that's boundaries. <coughs> but we but we do have data showing that, well, this might be even to your, your mm-hmm. listeners, too. We ha- there are data showing that people who call themselves religious in a 
conventional sense, you know, I go to church once a week yeah. and, and so on, uh, tend to have relatively thick boundaries. Mm-hmm. But people who, who call themselves spiritual, yeah. people who say, well, I'm not conventionally religious, but I think of myself as a very spiritual person, they tend to have thinner boundaries. So, so there, too, there was a shift towards, uh, towards thick yeah, that's very interesting. After 9-11. Now, here's one other thing that in people working with me were in New York and Boston, uh, th- there's a large Jewish population mm-hmm. there. Now, we noticed that uh, Jewish people in uh, New York and Boston uh, tend to be very kind of loose and liberal and open and mm-hmm. uh, with shades of gray, have thin boundaries in, in many senses. But many of them have cousins, close relatives, who live in Israel. Yeah. And when, when I've met some of those relatives, the relatives who live in Israel, and they have the same family, same genes, presumably, families, yeah. the people who live in Israel have much thicker boundaries. Mm-hmm. And again, it seems to me that's the Amoeba principle. They, they, yeah. In Israel, they, they feel constantly under attack. They feel they're surrounded by enemies. They don't know when a missile will arrive Mm -hmm. from God knows Mm -hmm. where and explode in their streets. Mm -hmm. So they have developed thicker boundaries. Uh, In New York and Boston, they feel relatively safe. Yeah. So it's safer to have thin boundaries. One of the, uh, well, I should say we are uh, talking to Dr. Ernest Hartman this morning, all the way from Boston, in the freezing snow. Hopefully he's sitting inside at this moment. Uh, (laughs) This is a Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill. (laughs) Do you have a comment about the snow? (laughs) No, no, but I I am am indoors. Oh, very good. I'm I'm, I'm old enough, so if I was sitting outdoors (laughs) talking, I think I... I might very well have frozen to death. Hypothermia or would. Pneumonia by now. <laughs> you know, um, on the subject of boundaries, and after this, I'd like to move more um, into dreams. Uh, on the subject of boundaries, I was thinking of a friend of mine who is a, sort of a type, a, a typical thin boundary person, and she describes this moment of of uh, realization for herself when she had had a conversation with somebody who was very critical or unduly uh, harsh and so forth. And she was sort of sitting with this as one does when one is very sensitive to those things and letting it sort of reverberate in her chest cavity, you know, figuring out, well, this has to do with my childhood, this and my relationship history of that. And, And then she sort of caught herself and she said, she realized, you know, I don't, I don't actually... I don't have to do anything with this. Uh, I just need to get a thicker skin. <laughs> she said, that's all I need to do. You know, I don't need to adjust anything. I actually just need to develop a thicker skin. So that, you know, one of the, that's sort of a classic uh, shifting of from from one state to the other in that amoeba principle that yeah, you're talking yeah. about. But my and, question... And did, she, did she feel that was easy to do? Because that's, that's, it's easy to say. It's not always easy to do. It took effort, but she was serious about it. And it's actually, where, you know, it's been, uh, well, I think this, she recounted this a few years ago, and it took her uh, uh, several months of just saying, no, actually, when this kind of stuff happens, I'm not going to respond in this way. I'm going to practice this new type of response and just let it, kind of let it, you know, shrug it off. Mm-hmm. But my question is, yeah. it seemed, and I also know, um, I have a friend who used to be a, 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 a 
commando in the Israeli armed forces and no longer lives in that situation is here in Northern California where everything is similarly sort of loose and a little bit easy like like uh, Boston, New York. But it seems much more difficult for somebody with thick boundaries to change the other way. Not only that, but it seems like a very thin boundary idea that we can actually change our responses like that. Like uh, it seems to me that if you were really thick boundaried and there's some absolutes like Israel is always right, or I, I really don't want to get into that kind of um, dialogue this morning, but you know, if you have very strong principles about something and they are never going to change, number one, how easy is it to shift that? And number two, is the impetus even there if one is a very thick boundaried person mm-hmm. yeah yeah no, no those are a whole host of very good questions there and my my sense is it's not easy uh, well I, oh, well okay in terms of the boundaries shift that's a whole big topic i have several yeah. chapters about that to some extent we shift a little bit every day my, mm-hmm. my tendency is to think when we wake up in the morning uh we tend to have somewhat thicker, more solid boundaries. Many of us do with work done in the morning. And then when we get a little sleepy, our boundaries get a bit thinner. Mm-hmm. And when we're, when we're, well, another way to put it is when we're working hard on a specific problem, we it t- tends to thicken our boundaries somewhat. Or we, yeah. we, or we could say we emphasize the thicker parts of ourselves. Say when you're working on a math problem, we're trying to figure out some real estate issue, I don't mm-hmm. know what, mm-hmm. you know, and you want to get to an answer, you want to make a decision, yeah. so you try to push yourself towards having thick boundaries, and again, some people can do that very well, sometimes it's harder, but then as we get into daydreaming, again, if, yeah. if life is peaceful, we're lying on our backs, and in the California sunshine, sure. out there where you are, <laughs> you know, not with no immediate task, we start daydreaming and fantasizing. And in daydreams and fantasies, we have thin boundaries. And in dreaming, we have very very thin boundaries. Uh, so we do shift a little bit every day. But in a, in a bigger sense, well, there's a MIBA principle mm-hmm. under, under stress. Occasionally, someone just falls apart completely under stress. I, I guess that would be a kind of extreme thinning. But usually, there's the MIBA principle. We, we get tougher. We thicken. Mm-hmm under stress. That's one kind of change. But now more specifically with your question and, and I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine myself talking to Northern California. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. I have mm-hmm. a feeling you have a lot of people in North California you probably have more women than men listeners. Yeah, I would say that's and, true. And you probably have more good dream recallers than non dreamers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, in fact, in fact, Northern California is the is the, is dream center for the. Yeah. <laughs> we, well, with the IASD. Right, I, it started in in the Bay Area, didn't it? It started in the Bay Area, yeah. and you know, I've been quite involved with it. You know, besides doing my own research, I've tried to help ASD, and mm-hmm. we uh, you know we worry about uh, who will come to the meeting. Right. We've got to get enough people to make make ends meet, and so on. And when we have meetings in Northern Cal- California. We had one right in Sonoma, which I guess... Yes, oh yes, I was at that one, sure. We had a meeting in Sonoma four years ago, Mm -hmm. and we've had meetings several times in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Those tend to be the best attended meetings, so that we... (laughs) It's useful for the society, we make ends meet. (laughs) But okay, so that's a long way of saying you probably... 
what I'm saying is you probably have a lot of people with relatively thin boundaries yeah. in your audience. I don't know whether you have too many Israeli army officers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, we, we do have groups of people who have taken the boundary questionnaire. And uh, office, army, well, we had, we had a group of naval officers, yeah. both men and women. And indeed, and as we predicted, they scored quite thick on the boundary yeah. questionnaire. Yeah. They were about the, the thickest. Let me try to think, who were the thinnest? Who, well, arts, art students at the Art Institute of Boston, yeah. uh, students mainly of painting and sculpture, they had about the thinnest, thinnest boundaries. But... Okay, so can one can one change one's boundaries? Now, uh, and, and now getting away from the Amoeba principle and so on, if you if you want to change your boundaries, <coughs> can can you do it or can it be done? Uh, yes, I think so, but but it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. Slowly. Now, I am um, aside from being a researcher, I'm also a therapist. I'm, 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 I'm over. I'm overeducated. I'm, <laughs> I'm a therapist. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a yeah. psychoanalyst. So I've I've done a lot of uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. Not I'm not a Jungian officially, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of Jungians. Yeah. I've, I've exchanged ideas with Jungian therapists. And I think it's not 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 that different. They do dynamic therapy too. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, so one question is, well, how do boundaries change in therapy? Is that one way to change? And my sense is yes. Now, I'm not saying you need therapy necessarily, mm-hmm. but my sense is someone with really uh, thin boundaries who is, is troubled by the thin boundaries yeah. can get some help in therapy. And I remember one patient of mine, I think I mentioned her, and one of the books, too, was a, w- a wonderful woman, you know, 30 years. She was uh, creative. She played the guitar. She composed music. She was wonderful to talk to. She, in, in therapy, I mean, she she free associated like mad. I was, I was mm-hmm. amazed with all the wonderful things she came up with. But it it wasn't entirely, you know, she, so she, she had very thin boundaries. Yeah. But it wasn't entirely uh, useful to her. Well, for one thing, she had a lot of trouble getting work finished. You know, she was in some kind of degree program, mm-hmm. and she would she had trouble getting her papers finished. Uh, like when she would look something up in the encyclopedia, I don't know, looking things up online. I mm-hmm. guess it's I guess it's similar. Uh, anyway, she this was some years ago. She used mainly paper encyclopedias. She loved encyclopedias, but whenever she looked something up, another article elsewhere uh, on the page would catch her eye, yeah. and she would get involved in that, and she'd follow that up and just go on the whole string of associations. Yeah. So she, it was very hard for her to finish her work. That was a, that was a problem. And, and there was another worse problem. She had, she had a boyfriend uh, with whom she'd broken up and gotten back together a number of times, People, when you people with thin boundaries tend to have tumultuous relationships more. Yeah, people, if you get someone with really thick boundaries, and the, the other person, other partner also has very thick boundaries, they sometimes have a peaceful relationship, but peaceful, but some sometimes looks a little bit 
dull. It looks like children in parallel play. You know, <laughs> she does her thing, I do my thing. You know, we get together for dinner, make love once in a while, but not very much interchange. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. That, that's exaggerating. But anyway, to make to get back to her, she had very thin boundaries. And aside from not being able to stick to a subject and finish her papers, one real problem she had was she had a boyfriend who uh, she loved, but who treated her really badly, and she kept breaking up and getting back together with him. And he became uh, addicted to something, cocaine, I think, mm-hmm. and he he beat her up sometimes. Oof. And it was a very disturbing situation. And in therapy, I remember it. It was quite a bit of work to get her to concentrate on that. You know, she loved to come in. She loved the idea of therapy, although she, although she didn't always love paying bills. Yeah. Like, <laughs> she got way behind. But uh, she would come in and tell me her dreams and tell me uh, all these wonderful things she was working on in her artwork. And I kept having to remind her, but wait a second, are you still with that? boyfriend has, has he you know has, mm-hmm. has been beating you up lately isn't it time to consider you know well a change you know getting rid of mm-hmm. him and oh uh, i don't know it, it, it was very hard she, I, I believe she did break she did break up with that boyfriend yeah. i don't know whether she stayed broken up yeah uh, she didn't stay in therapy that long but it was like with her the work in therapy uh, you know, the same thing would happen in counseling or just with a friend, would be just to to get the person with very thin boundaries to pay attention to the places where uh-huh. a more solid or thick right. boundary is useful. Right, because it's and so much she more... she was able to do that. When yeah. That does work, but, you know, to a certain extent. She has very thin boundaries. She's, not, she's never going to completely yeah. uh, change her boundaries. And I've also worked with people with very thick boundaries. You know, some people with very thick boundaries are perfectly happy with their boundaries, and of course they don't get into therapy. But sometimes I've had a few people who, for one reason or another, got into therapy and began to notice that maybe they were missing something. Mm-hmm. Their, their life was too black and white and organized. And this, this one man I'm thinking of did gradually thin his boundaries so much he began to have more dreams, and he began to get kind of interested in dreams. Yeah. It started off with the idea of, well, you know, I'm not sure. We talked about boundaries a little bit. You know, he was, you know, both of these patients were very intelligent, you know, he, and he would say, you know, he said, oh, yeah, I know what you mean by boundaries. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm, I'm solid. You know, my father was like that. My brother, I, you know, I want to be like my father, so on. But he did begin to notice that there were other things. He was missing something. His boundaries did get somewhat thinner so mm-hmm. it can it can change but but I should say one thing again I'm pretty I wish you had another line so listen yes to that, I know my feeling is maybe that your listeners have thin boundaries and they probably think that's the, that's obviously the way to be who who would want to have thick boundaries right and and sometimes I, I sound once in a while I sound like that I sound I make thick boundaries sound kind of bad uh, but but they're, but they're not. Thick boundaries include reliability, solidity, yeah. perseverance. You're getting getting the job done. Uh, people with thick boundaries, in, uh, when, whenever I've had data on it, make make more money. Right. They have a more solid job. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, lawyers and government people and business people to a large extent have relatively thick boundaries. Although, and not always. I mean, someone who starts a new business, a creative genius, may have very thin boundaries. Yes. But the people, you know, the middle managers, the vice presidents, and so they make sure things get done. They have thick boundaries. And it, it's useful. And you wouldn't want, you know, and, uh, as per the Amoeba principle, when you, you want, in a sense, it, it, may, it makes sense adaptively. You want, you know, if there's a fire, if your town is burning down, you want a fire chief or a mayor who will take charge mm-hmm. and decide what needs to be done. You want someone with thick boundaries to be there. You don't want a, a poet or art student to be directing operations. So thick boundaries have their uses. And and the uh, your group might be interested in the adjectives people like people with people with thin very thin boundaries tend to think of thin boundaries as creative and open and flexible mm-hmm. and thick boundaries as the, the words they use as uh, dull rigid yeah. armored you know something like that well, okay that's one point of view but on the other hand. Uh, your listeners might be interested that people with relatively thick boundaries also tend to like their boundaries better. They, em- they emphasize that thick boundaries, people with thick boundaries are solid, reliable, they get things done. And they think of people with thin boundaries as, well, they use words like f- oh, far out, uh, far out, flaky, unreliable. <laughs> so there, there, are, there are many points of view. I, I'm, sure. I'm, I try... In the book, I try, and, and in, the, in the questionnaire, we try hard not to make a, a value judgment. Yes. So let's move on. Let's see. We are uh, talking still to Dr. Ernest Hartman, uh, author of two recent books, Boundaries, A New Way to Look at the World, and The Nature and Functions of Dreaming. And uh, before I have to let you go, I wanted to touch in more uh, to your work on dreams in particular. And the, what strikes me about your work with dreams is this emphasis on on connectivity how dreams everything that that we experience uh emotionally physically it all gets woven in to our dreams so dreams are a way that we can always uh, sharpen our perceptions and and have new insights because it's connecting things in ways that our waking mind doesn't necessarily get to, and you talk about this continuum of of consciousness from waking consciousness to dreaming consciousness. I mean, all of this stuff is fascinating. I could probably talk about it for another day, but you, your poor voice will never hold out that. Besides, which somebody else needs to use a studio. But one uh, quote that I that really stuck out for me is that a dream is always a creation, never a replay. And and I think this this could be very comforting to a lot of people. The idea that Dreams come from within us, that, that they are a way that, that we process our emotional reality, our experiences, everything that we come into, into contact with, and, and that make it make sense internally. Mm-hmm. Now, I would go on to say that you, you recently published an article uh, in Dreaming, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Dreams, on meteorite or gemstone. And so since we only have a little bit of time left, I really wanted to to talk about this idea. You talk about, uh, you, you raise the question, is a dream a meteorite or a gemstone? In other words, a meteorite is something that's sort of like a bolt out of the blue, comes from nowhere, and it's, it, it transports us, or, or, or it, it, it uh, is a message from 
completely beyond our experience. Whereas a gemstone is something of the earth uh, that's that's been polished and worn down and and over time, but it's basically of the same elements that we are. And in your your analysis, you say you know. A dream is much more like a gemstone. A dream, because of the connectivity and the way that it represents or it takes pieces from the entire continuum of waking to dreaming consciousness, dreams are much more, they're guided by our emotions. And so that's, that's from this, the material from within us or from the, within the earth that makes it more of a gemstone than a meteorite. Have I characterized that yeah. correctly for you? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's hard to do in a few words. I think you've done fine. Because I spend the whole book doing yeah. that. I have the, oh God, there's so much I could talk about yeah. about dreams. But let me let me take up that scheme. I mean, my, I've done a huge amount of work on dreams after trauma. Yes. Tidal wave dream that by now has yes. been in all kinds of newspapers. You know, the, the people who've just been through a traumatic event often dream about a tidal wave. Mm-hmm. They're dreaming the emotion, uh, but. But let me get to your point, especially about meteor and gemstone. That's not a perfect metaphor, mm-hmm. but I'm meaning in several different ways. When when we first start looking at dreams, they do seem like meteorites. So mm-hmm. I I had that. I worked on that assumption. It's just, it's, it's it's us, but it's not us. It comes yeah. from somewhere else. It's it's fantastic, and, and and of course people used to think that dreams, or at least some dreams were messages from the God, mm-hmm. you know, from some some other place. And a lot of people even now, maybe some of your listeners, think a little bit like that. Not, not God's up on the Mount Olympus so much, but the dream comes from some sacred place somewhere that's totally different from the rest of us. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's part of the meteorite viewpoint. And even a lot of researchers take the meteorite viewpoint. But But let me first... Uh, mention what I what I see as the the other point of view. The thing what I believe in more, more and I've done a lot of research on this, is a, a, more or less a continuum of our mental processes. Mm-hmm. A continuum running from focused waking thoughts. You know, doing a math problem. Then it goes through a looser thought. You know, we're lying we're lying back, just just thinking about this and that. To Real reverie, fantasy, daydreaming, and then dreaming, dreaming yeah. at the other end. So there's a continuum, you know, dreaming and focused thinking at two ends of a continuum. I'm not saying that they're alike at all, mm-hmm. but they're part of a continuum. And the reason I say that, and I discuss a lot of work on this, is that although it, we start off thinking dreams are different, totally different, well, why are they totally different? And I, 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 in the paper, and, and I think I have this in my book, um, Nature and Functions of Dreaming, too, there are about six good reasons that people will give you. Dreams are so different. Well, first of all, because they're just a visual. They're percepts. They're not mm-hmm. concepts. You just see things. Yeah. You don't think. Well, there's a lot of work on that, <coughs> showing that... On the one hand, some dreams are very visual, perceptual. Some dreams involve a lot of thought. There's a big range and so on. It's not, it's not that, sure, there's a difference. Yeah. not like thinking. But there's a, there's a lot of overlap. And, of course, our daydreams, our fantasies, which most people put on the waking, one side of the continuum. Right. 
media arts. They, they have a lot of they have a lot of uh, visual stuff. You know, daydreams, fantasies are not that different. Uh, then dreams are uh, so real. You know, well, dream is totally different because it feels so real. What my thoughts and daydreams don't feel real in that way. Well, again, there's uh, there's overlap. There are yeah. people. I, I have some examples in the book of people with very vivid daydreams who have daydreams that are almost indistinguishable from their dreams. Uh, and I don't have time to go into long examples sure. there, but they're quite dramatic. For another reason is that, well, it, it's voluntary. You know, our, our thinking and daydreaming is voluntary, and dreaming is involuntary. Says, well, yes, but even that is not an absolute. Right. Again, I've had people who have, I've had and interviewed a lot of people who talk about daymares. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't make up that term. The, the people I interviewed yeah. with nightmares said, you know, I have daymares too. Mm-hmm. And I asked, you know, well, what do you mean exactly? And they described a daydream that got more and more frightening and out of control. And finally, they kind of snapped themselves out of it. It was very much like a nightmare, although they were awake. It was yeah. a daydream. So there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And, 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 well, I don't have time for more details, but in all these senses, and in fact, we've done studies showing that if you ask students to write down a recent dream and a, and a recent daydream on separate sheets of paper and so on, then you give it to judges to, to rate, to look at, yeah. examine in all kinds of ways, apply standard scales of bizarreness, right. dreamlikeness, etc. Right. There's a lot of overlap. Of course, dreams are scored as more dreamlike, more bizarre than daydreams on the average, but there's a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. And in fact, speaking for a moment about boundaries, students with thin boundaries turn out to have daydreams and fantasies that are just as dreamlike and just as bizarre as the night dreams of these students with thicker boundaries. Yeah. So there's a lot of overlap. And people who've studied daydreams, like uh, someone by the name of Jerome Singer mm-hmm. and also uh, uh, Winger, several people who've spent their lives doing studies of daydreams come to the same conclusion that daydreams are not that different from dreams. Yeah. tremendous amount of overlap. So dreaming is one end of a continuum. It makes more sense to me. Even if, you know, I, I think some dreams are very, very beautiful. Yeah. They're very creative. But it's more a gemstone. It's not yeah. a meteorite. And I, I accuse a lot of researchers, too, of taking the meteorite position. I don't know if you people know that there's a lot of work by Domhoff and his collaborators, uh-huh. right. all on Van der Castle scales, studying content, using how many words are there, right. how many characters, how many of every year. You, can, you spend about three or four hours scoring a dream for how many of each element does it have. Now, I, my claim is that that is taking the meteorite position. That is like a government uh, spectroanalyst. When, when yes. a meteorite falls to it, you send it off to Washington, <laughs> and they do spectroanalysis. They check how much of which elements are present. And that's worthwhile because the meteorite comes from some far-off planet or star, and you want to, yeah. you know, and then if you study this in tremendous detail, It'll teach you the secrets of that far-off star. Now, the the content analysis people, Domhoff and so on, are treating the dream that way. They spend hours and hours studying every detail of a dream, 
but it it doesn't occur to them to do that with daydreams or yeah. fantasies. Yeah. So they too are taking the meteorite position. It seems mm, completely different. It comes from outer space. Right. And one one more one more thing. There are there are scientists who say dreams are nonsense. Yeah. Cognitive trash and right. so on. You know, that's a common view among some biologists. Well, that view, again, I would call that a meteorite position. They're saying dreams are cognitive trash, dreams are random nonsense. But if you ask about thinking, uh, daydreaming, no, of course not. That's yeah. meaningful. Well, right. <laughs> they, again, are taking a meteorite position. Dreams are totally different from everything else. But I think the data shows that dreams are not totally mm-hmm. different. They're one mm-hmm end of a continuum. Well, so I, I hope, hope that makes sense. That does, well, it does to me, and that's really all that matters since I'm sitting here <laughs> at the microphone alone. So well, there. I hope it makes sense <laughs> to your listeners. Oh, no, I'm sure it does. And I have one final question. I know we're, we're uh, reaching the top of the hour, but so it's really interesting uh, to hear, and of course I remember it from reading the article, but uh, again, I mean, your idea of the gemstone is really that it's that it's within this continuum of our experience, and it's not something to sort of be analyzed with the spectrograph for uh, you know repetition of words and so forth, yeah. and and uh, not something that's the detritus of the day, some sort yeah. of random misfirings yeah. of the brain. It's actually something that's very uh, part of this organic whole of who we are. Yeah. Yeah, it's part of the whole, and it does lead to something else that, you know, you cannot dissect a, a gemstone perfectly. Right. You cannot. I feel, you, even if you're a good Freudian or Jungian, you, I, I disagree with Freud, maybe with Jung. Freud feels, you know, once you get to the late dream, once you've understood, you know, do free association, yeah. you've understood all the thoughts and wishes behind the dream, then you can kind of throw away the dream. Yeah. You now have the right. latent dream. That's right, the real exactly. meaning. I disagree with that. You can never completely understand the dream. Yeah. Sometimes all you can do is sit back and admire it like, like a gemstone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, my question, I guess, is, and this is what something that I combed through your, your books, I mean, not totally with a microscope, but looking for mention of things that really, in my view, can't quite be explained by the by the continuum principle, which is I would I would say first and foremost precognitive dreams. What about those dreams where I can see uh, clear as a bell my aunt in Pennsylvania something happening with her? I mean, how do you how do you bring those into your into your uh, model? You mean you mean sort of telepathic or clairvoyant yeah. dreams? You're yeah, or, about or precognitive, like oh, I know this is going to happen. And, it, and sure enough, it does. That type of well, thing. no, that's that's a very long. Yeah, that's a long story. <laughs> I think you probably better get another guest to talk okay. about precognitive. I mean, I'm very fascinated by yeah. precognitive dreams, and I have. Uh, but I, 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 well, I have a feeling some of your dreamers are not. Some of your listeners maybe will will not like this, but I think we have to be very very careful about mm-hmm. using the term precognitive. You know, some. Uh, I mean, obviously, I have dreams about uh, you know going to a meeting and giving a talk, and then I do go to a meeting. Mm-hmm. Well, is that a precognitive dream? Uh-huh. If you call that, some people at the dream society say, oh, yes, sure, that's a precognitive dream. Mm. Well, if you call that a precognitive dream, then, of course, we're full of precognitive dreams. But if you take a very careful definition, of, you know, it has to be 
seeing the future in a way that could not be explained in any normal mm -hmm. fashion, then it's much more tricky. And we have to design very careful studies to look for it. And yeah. well, as you know, there have been a few studies of telepathic yeah. dreams, and you know, one of them had very positive results, but they hard to replicate it. Yeah. Uh, all I can say is that it might happen, but the, the data are not are not yeah. very good. I, I okay. hate to say so. It, a lot of it may be explained in more obvious ways than to say our heart is a precognitive dream. But that's all I can remember. If, <laughs> if anyone's looking for an answer to precognitive dreams, no, my, my, my book does not Let's not do much with that. Well, uh, but what your books do do, and I'm, I'll say plural, is they, they offer a really useful uh, map of looking at dreams. And the way we didn't even get into the biology of dreaming and, and that sort of, you know, more of the, the meat from the, the nature and functions yeah. of dreams. So uh, what I, I would love to just sort of underline from the article is that I think uh, what your article really puts forth that's very valuable is just advice for therapists, uh, and and I would say, in more generally, I think it's it's useful advice for anybody who's looking at dreams. And if I may summarize, just to to sort of uh, round off the show, it's just to feel free to work on a dream. That dreams are not some the purview of some office somewhere that you don't have the key to. The dream, so you feel free to work on them. And I like that you emphasize that if you have a limited time, go for the central image of a dream. You know, go straight to the yeah. to the meat of the dream, and and you can generally stop after getting the gist of the dream. But if it's a big dream, uh, just keep going, and but never ex don't expect to ever finish. I just yeah. I, I think that's just really practical, sound advice. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good that's a good summary. And of course, people if they haven't read the books, they don't know what I mean by a central image. Yeah, but uh, we didn't even that, get to that. This a lot of work with the central image yes. of the dream, which seems to sort of carry the, the emotion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Ernest Hartman, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour with your hoarse voice in the blizzard <laughs> and <laughs> talking to us about dreams. Uh, Dr. Hartman is a professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine and director of the Sleep Disorders Center at Newton Wellesley Hospital. Um, is there a way for people to contact you if they have questions for you about your your uh, hypotheses and your, your theories about boundaries and so forth? Well, yes, sure. I mean, I hope people read the book on boundaries. It's, yeah. it's, it's cheap. It's, I should emphasize both of these books are pretty easy to yes, read. Yes, I would agree. I boundaries especially. There's one chapter that deals with details of the boundary questionnaire, but aside from that, it's it's very readable by any intelligent person. Yeah. And I'd love it if people got in touch with me. You have my email address. Mm -hmm. Not not on me, though. I can't repeat it to people right at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very simple. It's my initials, E-H, and the word dream, E-H. Uh -huh. e Dream uh -huh. at AOL.com. EH at AOL.com. So if you're interested in, in continuing this conversation with uh, Ernest Hartman, please feel free. Lovely invitation. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and expertise. Well, uh, thank you, Anne. It was a great, great pleasure to talk to you, and, and I hope you have many listeners. Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, have a good day. Okay, okay. Th th thank you so much. Sure thing. Bye bye. Bye bye.
That wraps up another Dream Talk Radio podcast. I'm Anne Hill, and you can find my past shows at dreamtalkradio.net and on iTunes. Be sure and join the Dream Talk Radio Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at Anne Hill to get announcements about future shows. Thanks for listening.